Well, good morning. Um, I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. My apologies for my allergies. The elders had a retreat uh, Friday night, Saturday, and we had a wonderful time. Um, But in a broken, fallen world, the beauties of nature come with the agony of allergies. Um, This is one of those times that makes me long for the new creation to come in its fullness. Now, providentially, today is Pentecost Sunday. I had not realized that until I got an email from Daryl Dash that was addressed to uh, um, the people attending Liberty Grace Church saying, it's Pentecost Sunday. But providentially, um, we are talking about the work of the Holy Spirit today. I didn't work that. That is the Lord. (laughs) Now, last week, we had a wonderful service. We were confronted with the tragedy of Samson. And the tragedy of Samson serves to illustrate the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant. And Sinclair Ferguson would point out and summarize the work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant and lead us into the work of the Spirit in the New Covenant. He says, the Spirit had been active among God's people in the Old Covenant, but his activity was enigmatic, sporadic, theocratic, That is to say, it was to equip the king to lead the nation, selective, and in some respects, external. By contrast, in the anticipated new covenant, the spirit would be poured out in a universal manner, dwelling in them personally and permanently. For it is not only because of Christ that we come to know the spirit more fully, but actually in Christ. Indeed, it is apparently a principle of the divine spirit's working that he declines to disclose himself in any other way. He will not be known as he is in himself apart from Christ. Before the spirit rests permanently on all the faithful children of God, he must first rest on the uniquely faithful son of God. And we have Pentecost Sunday in order to celebrate the coming of the Spirit, the fulfillment of the gift, the the new covenant promise of the Spirit coming upon all the people of God. And the Spirit then enfolds us by His presence into the perfect unity and love of the Godhead. And Paul Tripp describes this Unity and love as the ultimate community of describes the Godhead as the ultimate community functioning in perfect unity and love without argument, debate, or disagreement. The Father and Son make their home with us through the Spirit, as our Lord promised in chapter 14. And I think we all understand 
or I hope we all understand, that the Spirit is not an impersonal force. So all you Star Wars geeks like me, when we say, may the force be with you, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's Star Wars, this is reality. <laughs> Neither is the Spirit a turbocharged battery pack. He is none other than the third person of the triune God. In other words, the Spirit is God himself coming to live in us, to dwell with us, so that for those who are in Christ, we have the privilege of being able to say we are in real, vital communion with God. That is the wonder of salvation. God is not simply giving us fire insurance for all eternity or even fixing our brokenness. God is doing those things. But God is doing far more. He has given us himself. In other words, God is breaking through the loneliness and isolation of our self-centered rebellion in order to bring us into relationship with him forever. And the work of the Spirit begin, is, is to apply the redemptive work of our Lord Jesus Christ to us. That's why he is referred to as the Lord and giver of life who convicts us of our sin and shows us the glory of Christ, excuse me, so that we would trust in him. The Spirit is the one who breaks our hearts of stone and gives us new hearts on which God's law is written. We come again to the farewell discourse of Jesus because Jesus focuses our attention in John 13, 31, all the way to the end of chapter 16 on the work of the Holy Spirit. And so here is our affirmation on God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is fully divine and is a personal agent, not just an impersonal force. The Spirit makes the work of Jesus Christ effective in us by convincing us that we have sinned against God, that we therefore fail to meet God's standard for human life, that we are subject to God's judgment for that reason, and that Christ is the answer to our need. Christ gives the Spirit to indwell all those who believe in him. And the Spirit gives to believers a new spiritual ability to understand God's word and live in obedience to it. By indwelling us, he sets us apart as God's children. He continues to transform us into faithful followers of Christ. And he will, in the end, make us fully Christ-like. Now, Jesus in this farewell discourse, wasn't giving a lecture on systematic theology. It wasn't an abstract information dump. Jesus was promising the gift of the Spirit to comfort the troubled hearts of his disciples. And I hope that our thinking, our reflection on the person and work of the Spirit would also do the same thing. Comfort our troubled hearts, or perhaps trouble our comfortable hearts. 
Now, I, I had mentioned when we started this affirmation series that we will have Q&As. We will not do that this Sunday, but I would invite you to, have, to join me for Q&A next Sunday after the service and so that we can have ample time for Q&A, bring lunch. I promise to bring my own lunch. I'm not going to take yours. <laughs> I, I will even promise to share my lunch with you. Okay? But let's come together in fellowship. And you're welcome to pepper me with questions um, and to calm you down and let you not ask too many questions, we'll stuff you with food first. <laughs> but I promise to try to answer the questions, okay? So that's next week after the service. Now, let's read John 15, verse 1 to verse 17. This is what Jesus says. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, well, every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it would be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called your friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Now, you might wonder why in the middle, th this section, John 15 verse one to 17, comes in the middle of John 14 and 16, where the the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about the work of the Spirit all throughout. Well, it is because the life-giving work of the Spirit enables the faith that binds us to Jesus. The presence of the Spirit 
enables us to abide in Jesus Christ. It is through faith that is wrought by the Holy Spirit that we are united with Christ. The Holy Spirit binds us to Jesus. According to Michael Reeves, it is by the Spirit that the Father has eternally loved His Son. And so by sharing their Spirit with us, the Father and the Son share with us their own life, love, and fellowship. By the Spirit uniting me to Christ, the Father knows and loves me as a son. By the Spirit, I begin to know and love him as my Father. By the Spirit, I begin to love aright, unbending me for my self-love. He wins me to share the Father's pleasure in the Son and the Son's in the Father. By the Spirit, I slowly begin to love as God loves, with his own generous, overflowing, self-giving love for others. And that's how Jesus can say in verse 8 that we would bear fruit. It is the Spirit who enables disciples to bear fruit to the Father's glory. See, as the Spirit dwells in us, He renovates our hearts. He is transforming our desires. And He does this by verse, chapter 15, verse 26. By showing us Jesus. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, He will testify about me. And then later on in chapter 16, verse um, 14. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive all, what he will make known. All that the Father... Oh, oh my goodness, this is horrible. I'm not crying. <laughs> but it is, it is a pain. Let's, let's begin with verse 13. Chapter 16, verse 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. See, that's what the Spirit does. He points us to Jesus he shows us the beauty of Christ over and over. He teaches us Christ's love. As Paul would say, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that love of Christ that the Spirit enables us to know is what motivates us to obey Him and to love one another. Because that Love transforms our hearts. And as a result, we have the joy in verse, chapter 15, verse 9 to verse 12, of remaining in his love. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. See, that's what's happening here. 
as we know the love of the Spirit, the love of Christ through the Spirit, it transforms us, and then we're able to love our brothers. And it's not that we're earning his favor. We're not earning his love because Jesus points out in verse 13 to 16, our relationship, our friendship with Christ isn't because we chose him. Verse 16, you didn't chose me, choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you may go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. That's our privilege. We have been chosen by God, not because of anything we've done, but because he has chosen to love us. It is a privilege to be called the friend of Jesus. We are in communion with him. And that magnificent reality of communion with the triune God needs to change the way we think of the church. What that means is that the church is more than a charitable, non-soliciting, non-profit corporation. Government may think of us that way, right, Kathy? <laughs> That's why we got those bylaws. But we are more. The church is the dwelling place of God himself. We are God's holy temple, representing the King of kings and Lord of lords in this community. But here's the sad tragedy. The church has imbibed the individualism and consumerism of our culture. So we have a tendency to evaluate the church in terms of what does it do for me? Instead of recognizing that we have the privilege of giving ourselves to seeking the good of the body. That God has put us here to serve his purposes. To help others flourish. Because in that flourishing of others, we ourselves flourish. See, that's why Jesus in um, chapter... 15 verse 12 and 13 calls us to self-giving love for one another. You notice what he says in case you missed it. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. What does that mean? Well, verse 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's precisely what Jesus did. And so for us, for you and me, we need to be giving our lives for one another. And no, this is not the sappy, sentimental um, song from Kevin Costner's movie, I Swear I'll Die for You, that stuff. Before we swear we'll die for others? Let's start small. Why don't we intentionally build deep relationships with the people in the church? In the same way that God has enfolded us into the intimate communion of the Trinity. That's love one another as I have loved you. So let's drill down a bit. Think of the people that you hang out with from the church. I hope you do hang out with some people from the church. 
What's the basis of your connection? Is it because your personalities are in sync? Is it because you have a common hobby? Is it because of family ties? I can't get rid of him. <laughs> Is it because of politics? These things are good. But what Jesus is saying is that our bond needs to be far deeper than that. Our bond needs to be grounded in our mutual delight in Jesus. Because he has chosen us to be his friends. And so I will be friends with that person that I do not agree with politically because he is a friend of Jesus too. You see, the beauty of gospel community is that it is a communion of natural enemies reconciled by the gospel. And really, that's what we're celebrating in the Lord's Supper. That the King of kings and Lord of lords has brought us under his reign. We are his people. And we set aside our preferences, our politics, our habits, our hobbies, in order to gather together as a body united by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, gospel, that's gospel community. And the beauty of gospel community is that it is intimate, but it is also open. It draws others to share in its warmth. Just as the Trinity, the triune God, drew us in. In fact, God created us in order to draw us in. It is a kind of community that exercises what Rosaria Butterfield calls radical, ordinary hospitality. And by that, she means using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. Great concept, right? So tell you what. Within the next week or so, why don't you invite someone that you do not know in the church to have coffee or dessert or a meal. But, you know, my house is messy. I hear you. So is mine. <laughs> and, you know, it's often uncomfortable, isn't it? To bring somebody into your home. But you see, that's the kind of community that reflects the character of God because it is not folded into itself. The communion of the Spirit leads us outward to bear witness to Jesus. This is what verse 27 of chapter 15 says. We rejoice in the gift of the Holy Spirit who shows us Jesus. He will testify about me in verse 26. But read on in verse 27. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. 
You see, the communion of the Spirit leads us outward to bear witness to Jesus. And that's why the Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 4, says to the church to whom he writes, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. You see, God is so wonderful, we cannot keep Him to ourselves. Okay, so this is a little crass, but run with me on this. What do you do when you hear about this awesome sale on books? Some of you shrug. Whatever. But for those of us who love books, when you hear that it's 90% off, you don't just run to the bookstore by yourself, do you? I hope not. When you love people, you actually tell them, hey, 90% off on all books, come with me. Isn't it? Because our delight is not complete until we've told others about Jesus. Union and communion with God leads us to participate in the mission of the triune God. And this is really the focus of John 15, verse 18, up to chapter 16, verse 15. The Spirit is the helper who equipped the disciples to bear witness to Jesus in verse 26 and 27. Chapter 15, 26 and 27. And then Jesus warns them, Guys, witness is not going to be easy. After warning them to love one another in verse 17, Jesus goes on in verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Maybe that's why we need to love one another. Because we're going to need that love to confront the hatred of the world. Because our Savior, who calls us his friends, was hated by the world. In fact, it's not just being hated actively. In verse, chapter 16, verse 1 to verse 4, Jesus tells the disciples, all this I have told you so that you will not fall away. What do you mean fall away? Well, because they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this. So when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now that I'm going to him who sent me. Imagine that. We bear witness to Jesus in a hostile world that is willing to go to the extent of putting us to death. But we need not fear because the Spirit is with us. He empowers us. He instructs us so that Jesus can say to his disciples in verse 13, chapter 16, verse 13, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, let me just 
make a caveat here. Jesus is promising this to his disciples. The Holy Spirit would help his disciples understand the person and work of Jesus so that they could bear witness to him. And that witness of Jesus' disciples is preserved in the scriptures. That is why we believe the accounts about Jesus in the Bible. They are eyewitness accounts, but they are more than eyewitness accounts. They are spirit-guided, spirit-empowered testimony to the person of Jesus Christ so that they are truthful and reliable. And the Spirit then works to enable you and me to understand and apply these accounts properly in our own context so that we too might bear witness to Jesus. And in light of what Jesus talks about here, we realize that bearing witness isn't easy. I mean, duh. (laughs) But that drives us to depend on God because we cannot convince people on our own. However logical, reasonable, intelligent, and intellectual you are so that you could defeat any argument, please understand, as Blaise Pascal would put it, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. You can't do it. Thankfully, the Spirit doesn't just give people the power and the words to speak. The Holy Spirit opens people's eyes to the truth. He is the one who drives our feeble words home, convicting people of their sin, their inadequate righteousness, and the reality of God's judgment hanging over them. That is the promise in chapter 16, verse 8. Notice what it says. When he comes, when the Spirit comes. In fact, let let me read from verse 6, verse 7. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the, the advocate will not come to you. Advocate implies a legal transaction or a legal situation. And in a sense, what Jesus is talking about is that the world is on trial. People think God is on trial, but in reality, the world is on trial. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8, when he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. That is the work of the Spirit. That's why we need to pray. Because people will not be convinced. They may be defeated, but they will not be convinced. And they will not believe. Because faith is a gift that only the Spirit can bring about. But D.A. Carson takes this a little sideways when he goes on in his commentary to say this. 
It is true that the Spirit would convict people. But D.A. Carson says, undoubtedly, this kind of conviction is driven, driven home to the world. Don't miss this. Primarily through Jesus' followers who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, live their lives in such growing conformity to Christ that the same impact on the world is observed as when Jesus himself lived, to, lived his life before the world. Thus, when Christians obey the new commandment, all men learn they are Jesus' disciples. So it's more than our intellectual arguments. Our intellectual arguments need to be supported, sustained, and driven home by our life and our love. And you see, that's why the Spirit works. The Spirit molds us into the image of Jesus so that we might be able to bear faithful witness. Because as Marshall McLuhan says, the medium is the message. And we who are the medium of gospel proclamation need to embody that same proclamation. God grows us so that we may be able to point people to Jesus. Or as one author would put it, in all that God is doing to form us, he is doing it not only for us, he is using us as a means to form new life in others. If you didn't get it yet, God brings us into communion with him so that we might lead others to hope in Jesus. And as we continue to think about this, we need to recognize that our God is outward focused. The perfect mutual delight of Father, Son, and Spirit moved the triune God to create us so that we may enjoy communion with the triune God. And so we reflect the character of our God best when our own delight in Him leads us to proclaim His greatness to others. So that the test of the beauty of our fellowship as a church is when it stretches itself out to enfold outsiders and strangers. But unfortunately, I had a conversation once with Terry Cuthbert, who used to be the president of the fellowship. And he said, congregations tend to focus inward. The job of leaders is to push them outwards. And sometimes out of the church, but that's a different story. Now you might say, well, why, why do elders and leaders have to be so mean as to push the congregation outwards? Well, let me use this object lesson. This is my souvenir from Banff last year. Pretty color, isn't it? But you might be wondering, well, what is this? Is it a pouch? I mean, it has a zipper. I can put things in. It can be a pillow, but it's a little hard. I suppose Daniel can use it as a punching bag to get his aggression out. 
But that's not really justifying the cost of this bag. I might still hear about it from Joel later. <laughs> what is this thing? Well, as this is, it doesn't fulfill much of a purpose. But here's my magic trick that I practiced last night. You see, this isn't meant to be folded in on itself. This is meant to be a carry-on bag that carries about 40 liters. In other words, I could travel the world with this bag because I can put two weeks' worth of clothing into this, depending on how well you pack. But here's what this is supposed to be. And this is why it cannot simply be folded in on itself. It is meant to be folded out. And it functions best and fulfills the purpose for which it was made by being folded out. In fact, if I don't use it to travel, I'm not really making the most of it. I did use it at our retreat yesterday, uh, on the weekend, so I'm getting some use of it. But the point of it is, when a congregation is folded inward, it's not fulfilling the purpose for which Jesus calls you and me his friends. And that is tragic. Because that means that we have forgotten the wonder of being folded into God's delight in himself. We have gotten caught up in our continuing selfishness. And we're just like Jesus' disciples who were so focused on their pain that Jesus was leaving. They were oblivious to the suffering he would endure on their behalf. That is what Jesus says in chapter 16 and verse 5. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. They were all about, oh my goodness, Jesus is leaving. They didn't understand. And we often are like that, aren't we? But that's why we need the gospel. In fact, that's the whole point of the Son of God becoming man. Because we could never change on our own. We could never learn to love the other on our own. We are way too curved in on ourselves to care for anyone but ourselves and our tribe. In fact, if you look at verse 32 of chapter 16, Jesus says, A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. Thankfully, God would not give up on his disciples. Thankfully, God will not give up 
on us. The Son of God became man so that he could die for us. His death and resurrection pays for our sin and satisfies the justice of God. His ascension paves the way for the gift of the Spirit who gives us life and renews us in the image of Christ. So that as Jesus would say in verse 33, his death was not a defeat, but the means by which he would overcome the world. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, in the farewell discourse, there are five specific passages where Jesus talks about the gift of the Spirit. So I'm going to sum it up. The disciples were grieved because Jesus was going to die, but Jesus reassures them that their grief would turn to joy because not only would he rise again, he would send his Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, first of all, mediates our experience of communion with God and our comfortable dependence upon him. In other words, our faith. He is the one who would convict us of our sin and point us to Jesus. And that's wonderful. Because if we only saw our sin without seeing God's remedy, we would be in despair. But that's why it's so important that the Spirit points us to Jesus. He is the new covenant gift who enables us to see the glory of Christ so that we, out of delight in him, might bear witness to Jesus with clarity and with power. The Spirit, thankfully, is determined to complete the work that he has begun in you and me. And he does this by pointing us back to Jesus over and over to see the beauty of his self-giving love that never ends and never fails. And knowing that love motivates us to give ourselves to others in loving gospel community so that we experience for ourselves that it is, in fact, more blessed to give than to receive. And the more we give of ourselves, the more we learn to rely on God because we realize that we have nothing of our own to give. And in relying on God, we experience the abundant sufficiency of the triune God. And in knowing that abundant sufficiency, we learn to find our satisfaction in our triune God. And as we know that satisfaction, God's delight in himself becomes our own delight. And that same delight leads us to reach out to others with the gospel. And so the cycle goes on and on, deeper, deeper, wider, greater. That is our tremendous privilege. Because as Michael Reeves points out, and we'll close with this, when we go out and share the knowledge of God's great love, we reflect something profound about who God is. For when Jesus sends us, he is allowing us to share the missional, generous, outgoing shape of God's own life. This is our privilege, our calling.
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Let us stand as we respond to God's word.